Solidarity, a podcast where we draw connections between power, place, and health, and discuss how our lives, our fates, are all interconnected. Here are your hosts, Erica Burrell-Girardi and Beth Silver. Hi there, and welcome to In Solidarity. I'm Erica Burrell-Girardi, here with my co-hosts, Beth Silver. Great to be together again, Beth. And great to be with you, Erica, here for our first full episode of In Solidarity, a podcast from County Health Rankings and Roadmaps. As you heard in our intro, this podcast is about how our lives are interconnected and what that means for health and well-being. We're making the connections between the past, current systemic and structural problems, and the future, and how well and how long people live. But first, as co-hosts, I suppose we should introduce ourselves. Erica and I are colleagues here at County Health Rankings and Roadmaps. It's a national program of the University of Wisconsin Population Health Institute in Madison, Wisconsin, with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Before joining the team here, I was a longtime newspaper journalist. And my career has been in public health. For the last four years, I've led the webinar series at County Health Rankings and Roadmaps, where every month we connect with leaders and community activists to learn about ways to make our communities healthier. I'm excited to extend that mission to our new podcast. Our first mini-series on In Solidarity will tackle the racial wealth gap, what it is, how we got here, how it affects health, and what we can do about it. To address the issue, we have to understand the forces behind racial wealth inequality. It started with the enslavement of human beings, then government policies going back to the Civil War era, and continuing through the creation of Social Security. And the fact that policies excluded many people of color by excluding agricultural, domestic, and railroad jobs. Keep in mind, these are jobs that were held in large part by people of color. Or let's consider the GI Bill, which primarily benefited white veterans. Or the current tax code, which favors homeowners who are disproportionately white. There are just some staggering statistics about the wealth gap, Erica. Wealth being the total value of assets minus any debts. Like the fact that racial differences are far more pronounced in wealth than in income. Black families have just 10% of the assets of white families in this country. That difference between black and white wealth exists even when other things are constant, like income and educational attainment. White people without a high school diploma, for example, have a higher net worth than black people with a college degree. And when you consider, Beth, how a family's assets impact how long and how well they live, the need to focus on wealth is clear. When we say family or generational wealth, by the way, we're not talking about riches. We are referring to some basic needs, things like a few months savings, money for education, for buying a home, or maybe starting a business. In this first episode, we'll kick things off by talking with the author of a new book about how collective action, in essence social solidarity, can return public goods to the public for the common good. It's about chipping away at inequities and the racial wealth gap. That's right. Donald Cohen is the author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. He's also the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, a national research and policy center out of Oakland, California. Donald Cohen was gracious enough to join us today from his home in Los Angeles. So excited to engage in this conversation with him and to be able to ask him questions 
about health equity and the racial wealth gap. We'll bring Mr. Cohen into the conversation in just a minute. But first, a word about why we're looking at health through the lens of social solidarity. It's a concept that's been around for more than 100 years. We're deeply connected to one another in a complex modern society, and the collective decisions we make have profound consequences for our health. Health is grounded in the reality that policies and community-level decisions impact everyone. Our own data here at countyhealthrankings.org clearly show this. In our first series of In Solidarity, as we mentioned, we're covering the racial wealth gap, or as some scholars are calling it, given its severity, the racial wealth divide. Over the course of six episodes, we'll talk with leading experts about the history of the racial wealth gap and how this continues to affect the health of Black Americans, Indigenous people, and other people of color. We'll also discuss how we can harness collective power to fix this. Research has shown that wealth, the opportunity to build it and use it, is deeply connected to health. So even rich countries like the U.S. might suffer from poor health if we don't focus on opportunity for everyone. We have a long way to go. Income inequality is bad enough, but when you consider assets like investments, real estate, and so forth, you know the things that build wealth, we have a lot of work to do. I'm so thrilled to introduce our first guest for In Solidarity, Donald Cohen. As I mentioned, he's the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, a national research and policy organization that studies public goods and services and advocates for strengthening public institutions that work for all of us. He also just co-authored a new book called The Privatization of Everything. So happy you could join us, uh, Mr. Cohen. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Donald, the theme that runs through our shows is the idea of social solidarity. We want to start by asking you what we plan to ask all of our guests. What does social solidarity mean to you and how does it influence the work that you do? Well, it, uh, it's a great question. I'm glad to, that it's the starting point. It's sort of at the core of the book that I wrote. It's about the, that, that there are things that we have to do together. So I'll answer that at two levels. One is a value level. I think that, you know, we're social creatures. We need each other to get through life, right? And that's not just we need our family. We need we really need each other. Everything that you come in contact with throughout the day, uh, many different people had a had a, played a role in creating it. But the other thing that social uh, that it means to me is that that, that there's a fact of our interdependence. Whether we want to admit it or not, we rely on each other. For me, you know, for many of us, COVID has punctuated and underlined the a key notion that the health of all of us depends on the health of each of us. That's a fact. So it's in our interest then, not just for me to be healthy and get vaccinated or to be, to be able to go to a doctor. It's literally in my interest for everyone to be healthy. It's in my interest for everyone to have an education, to everyone to be able to go to college, for everyone to be able to breathe clean air, for everyone to have a good enough job that pays them so they can afford childcare for their kids. So all these things are essential public goods that it's critically important that everyone has and that we can only do those things if we do them together. And we can only do them together if we have a sense of solidarity and trust in one another and commitment to the basic project that is a democratic nation. Yeah, good stuff. What role do public goods play in building wealth? 
Well, they're essential. So again, what I, how I define public goods is the, the essentials that we all need, you know, uh, health, education, clean water and environment, uh, clean air, the planet, uh, you know, kind of all of the above, our ability to move around, mobility, sort of, you know, all of these things. And so if that's the first thing to start with. So if you don't have access to, the, to some of those essentials, right? If you don't have access to health, right? What happens? We know what happens. People end up sicker. They end up in debt. They end up underwater all the time, right? And if, you're, and if you don't have a job that pays you a livable wage and has healthcare benefits and all the above, you're underwater all the time. If you can't get a loan because either you don't have the income to support paying back the loan or you're subject to exclusions and you know redlining in the past and other sort of structural exclusions to be able to get access to cheap debt, then you don't you can't build assets. And if you don't have assets, you don't have wealth. If you don't have retirement savings, you don't have wealth. These are shackles. Donald, you you said um, you gave the example of the person who um, doesn't have a living wage, for example. Why does uh, somebody across the country care about if they're doing well, they're accumulating wealth, they're um, earning an income? Why do they care about the person who can't do that? Well, I, I you know I say a few things. Um, one is that person is you know we can go down a little bit of a list. That person who's not making a livable wage is relying on the public for things, whether it's Medicaid or food stamps, uh, or they're not paying, you know, they, they can't pay enough taxes to provide, you know, to, to, to provide, you know, the basics that government needs to do. Then we all pay, right? So there's sort of a distinct and clear economic interest. Um, but we also realize that we don't grow economically unless people have, are building wealth. You know, grow as a nation. Our, our economy doesn't grow, right? So we, you know, number, we also realize that we can't solve the big ones. If people can't buy a car that, you know, if they, that doesn't emit greenhouse gases because it's an old car, we all suffer from that. So there's many things that happen if people don't have wealth, people don't have access, people don't have cars, people don't have health care that really do affect us all. It may it may seem far away, but there's no question it's got to, you know, it's kind of all in on on the big stuff. And the, you know, the big stuff is inequality, the big stuff is racism, the big stuff is climate, uh, the big stuff is democracy. We kind of need everybody in to be able to to to, to attack those issues. We thought your book, The Privatization of Everything, was a good jumping off point for us since, at its core, it's about solidarity. You write that recognizing how dependent we are on public goods makes us, quote, a healthier, fairer, more compassionate, and more democratic nation. Can you tell us more about what you consider to be public goods and what's happening to them? Yeah, a few things. So uh, let me say first that, you know, it, the term public goods in the economics textbooks is a, you know, which is sort of a dominant, you know, dominates a lot of people's thinking, a lot of, you know, uh, opinion makers thinking is that it's it's a very narrow definition that I can explain it very briefly. It's, it's things that are non-excludable and non-rivalrous. And it sounds complicated, but it's actually pretty simple. They are things like a streetlight that you can't exclude someone from a public thing that you can't exclude someone from using. You know, everybody can, and that's the non-excludable. The non-rivalrous means that they are things that if someone is using that light to read a map, 
other people can walk up and use it as well, right? So everything else is a private good in, in that in that in that view of that you know view of economics. Um, now, so take healthcare. It's in that definition, it's a private good. You can exclude. We do. And it is rivalrous. You have to be have both because you know there's only so many doctors and nurses and healthcare facilities. So classical economics are saying it's basically saying is that the market gets to decide what everyone should have, what we should consider a public good that is essential. So we say, we reject that. And we talk about that in the book. We say is to think of a public good as those things that are essential to survive to survive and thrive: health, education. Uh, a clean, clean water environment. You know the ability to communicate with one another, the ability to move around, mobility, trans, you know, transportation. They're the things that we all need to survive and thrive, and they're also the things that we can only do if we're committed to doing it for all. If we do them together, the only way to get universal health care coverage, even with private providers and all that, is government involvement. The only way to 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 be able to send a letter at the same cost to every corner of the country is with government involvement, right? So there are things that we can only do if we do them together. I'm wondering, too, you describe how privatization gained momentum in large part during the Reagan era. But where are we today? Where is the American mindset at on the concept of the common good? There's a few things I would say. One is after, you know, 40 years since the Reagan revolution and sort of what began kind of an assault on the idea of government and the institution of government, using racism, using lots of things, losing lots of propaganda and, and great rhetoric. He was a great speaker. Um, you know, people believe government is inefficient and inappropriate and negative, period. Government bad. So right now we're in kind of an idea environment that says government can't do things, the private sector can. Now it's it's not that's not universal. I mean, we see things that the private sector you know is is not doing well also, but so we're in that place. We're also in a place where taxes have been cut at the federal, the state, the local level, so that we don't have the ability to provide what should be basic essentials for all. Right. So that you know, childcare. I believe that's a fully privatized public good. We, you know, we, I, my kids are grown, but I have grandkids. It's incredibly expensive, you know, to, to, to put your kid in childcare. Um, so if that's the case, then, you know, you know, we don't have the money, then people are left to the market to meet their essentials, to meet their essential public goods. Just a, a follow-up question. I'm wondering, do you think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy? You know, we cut uh, taxes, we cut budgets, um, then we don't show the public the value of public goods? Well, I don't think it's a self-fulfilling privacy. I think it is a st- strategy mm, yeah. <laughs> of those, right? You know, it's like uh, someone runs for office. Uh, the government's all screwed up. Elect me and I will prove it to you, <laughs> right? And so if you don't have the resources to do things, if you come into office and say, I'm going to cut your taxes, and you're going to say, I don't think the government should, even should be doing these things. Um, then you're going to dismantle the institutions. In this first series of In Solidarity, we are focusing on the racial wealth gap and how it's connected to health. Now, you make a compelling argument in your book about how racism contributes to this shift away 
basically from solidarity in American society. How does this anti-public thinking, as you put it, have racist structures at its center? Yeah, it's a great question. So the privatization of education through school vouchers and through uh, growth of school charters, I can get into that, is uh, it started as a racist segregationist response to Brown versus Board of Education. Southern states, you know, that what they did in response uh, was create school voucher programs where people could get their tax voucher and go to a private school because white families didn't want their kids in schools with black kids. So they created segregation academies and white flight academies and even, you know, closed down some of the public schools that were primarily, you know, black kids because they didn't have the money anymore because they, you know, they, they were sending it off. So that, and they and they spoke about it as this, as school choice, right? We should be able to choose who we want to be in school with and who we don't want to be in school with. You can look at the record. It's, you know, there's lots of quotes about that. And so we, so that's the first thing. And we see that throughout. We see, to, and you know, going to today, we see increasing segregation in schools. You know, we found uh, 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 because people are choosing, right, what school they want to go to. It's because now we're putting these things in the market, right? So there's the normal stratification and segregation that happened because of market choice, right? So we are increasingly seeing uh, increasing segregation, right? Because of in, in, in education throughout in states all across the country. An important point to make there on solidarity is that in terms of social solidarity, if you are not interacting with people and therefore you do not have the ability to understand their perspective and their experience, right? And that then it becomes easier to say to other them, to make them the other, right? You have to interact. So the public places that we interact, the pub, you know, parks, libraries, schools are being whittled away. So we, you know, less and less do we interact with one another. People that are different from us, people that have different ideas than us, people that look different, that that you know that worth you know worship other religions. It's it is at the core of our of our problem in democracy and economy and all things right now. I mean, the other piece of you know racism, you know how racism has affected all this. Again, when you put it in the market, the markets exclude. That's what they do. They only sell things to people with money. Um, and then you know Reagan, as we mentioned, you know um, he when he was attacking welfare queens, um, what was really going on there is he was saying, look, the government serves somebody else, not you, and that somebody else is undeserving, right? That wasn't an accident. That was, that was by design. Oh, wow. What about health? How does the massive gap in wealth between white people and people of color impact health? Well, you know, if you don't have resources, you, you know, in our society, you don't have health. You, you know, you're, you're not, I mean, dentistry right hmm. you know we all know so i mean you know d- dentistry is expensive lots of people avoid dentistry because they don't have resources your teeth aren't you you, you can't you know uh replace a a, a a lost tooth with an implant or however they do that you don't get a job i mean these are very practical things that happen in poverty and uh and so Health is crucially important. It's, it, you know, it's, it's why I say the public goods, they're the basics. If we don't have the basics, you, you know, you can't get anything else done. 
right? And and there's very few things that are as important as health, right? I mean, there, I mean, there are other important things, of course, but if you're sick and you don't have paid, you know, time off, you know, you know, you may not make that rent payment. What about the idea of individualism? Can you explain, Donald, how this is not really something we can attribute to poor individual decisions? I think there's this false narrative that leans toward the idea that if Black Americans just knew how to save better or made better personal decisions, somehow there would be no racial wealth gap. (laughs) Yeah, I find that one funny. Um, But it absolutely, it's, you know, People are on their own. You know, if it, if someone can't, here's the, the core idea. If someone can succeed, it's their own fault and it's not my responsibility. It's theirs solely. So, you know, and, you know, listen, we're all responsible. You can't ignore it. The fact that we have responsibilities, but if you make it harder for people to get an education because it, you know, because of segregation or you can't go to college because you can't afford it. Mm -hmm. If you make it harder to buy a home, if you make it harder to afford childcare, if you are easy, you know, if if it's easier to be burdened by and shackled by debt, um, these, like I was saying earlier, these are shackles and there's no bootstraps that pull you out of that. Yeah. We're for, I'm for personal responsibility. I teach my kids that. But personal responsibility doesn't create the roads. It doesn't get everybody health care. It doesn't get everybody, you know, access to higher education. It doesn't clean the air. It doesn't do all sorts of stuff. You know, you live in a poor community where there's a toxic emitters are in your, you know, live in your neighborhood. And you where are you going to get the money to buy a house in a wealthy community that doesn't have, you know, uh, and, you know, toxic emissions in it? You don't. Yeah, and we'll we're going to get into concrete solutions for the racial wealth gap late in later episodes, but in terms of promoting social solidarity and reversing our anti-public thinking, where do you see things headed and what should we be doing to create more equitable opportunities and outcomes? You know, where do we go? We we have to attack the mindset and those ideas that have got Im- embedded that we were talking about earlier individuals they're on their own no there are things we can only do together we actually are in and in fact it is true we are in it together whether we admit it or not we have to attack that the market's the best thing you know the market's the right thing instrument to to meet our needs no in fact i just say there are market things there are private private goods and market things and public goods they're different things you don't use markets to deal with public goods you may use private businesses but that's different from using the market so, you know, market mechanisms. So we have to, you know, business more efficient. So let them do everything. Well, there are businesses that are efficient. There are businesses that are not efficient, but businesses are a black box. We actually don't know. All we know is whether the stuff they produce the stuff and how much it costs. Um, and so, and there are lots of government agencies that are efficient in providing quality services all around us. And, and which is kind of the second sort of mindset is, you know, it's easy to not like government because there's so much negativity. There's so much you know attack on it, and there's so much negative. Um, but in fact, you know, public things are kind of all around us that we you know we sort of take them for granted. You know, you turn on the faucet, the water comes out. I mean, it's not good in all places. You know, Flint had problems. You know, health problems. We just didn't spend the money, right? But um, uh, you know, the paint on our walls used to have lead in it, but that was public action that took that lead out. Of, of paint and of gasoline. So there's one of the things I say is that the, the, the public is both around us, is both 
ubiquitous and invisible at the same time. So we need to sort of lift up that, in fact, there are public things all around us that, you know, that actually help us get through the day. It's not all bad. And then, of course, and then remember what the public purpose of those things are. This is all sort of the idea of war, war, right? You know, access to transit is about mobility, right? Access to health, me having health care is about a healthy population. I think it's always important to, re- to remember that and our interdependence. It seems like in some ways, uh, you know, there are specific strategies to uh, close the, the racial wealth gap. But it also seems like that um, maybe in mindset shifting ways, there are um, sort of feels like an, a marketing battle in a way. You know, you have on the one side um, all of these um, private companies and and uh, conservative thinkers who want to change, I think, as you wrote, um, public goods into consumer goods. Um, they've reframed it in that way. But who's doing that marketing push or reframing things on the other side of it? Well, it's a problem. It's, you know, I think we've been under assault. You know, the, gov- the idea in the, of a government to this point, also the institution, but the idea of government has been under attack for, you know, since the Reagan years and before and a little before. But there's no similar force saying, you know, pushing back, but, you know, both sort of saying no to those ideas and sort of un- unpacking them and saying what's true and what's not, but advocating for those public things. There's not. There's lots of us who are working on specific issues like public health, like or housing, right? How do we get people affordable housing? That's, of course, key to wealth, right? Um and but not the the larger ideas of public. We're you know it's missing. It's part of the reason we wrote this book. Very good. That's a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you <laughs> so much. Um, we really appreciate it, Donald. And um, thank you for a great book. It was a great read. Well, thanks so much for having me. What a great conversation with Mr. Cohen. You know, he's clearly fighting to make sure that public goods stay in the hands of the public. Really, it's putting the idea of social solidarity into practice. Yeah, Bev, so much is riding on this struggle, including the wealth and health of people of color across the country. That was a fascinating conversation. Wasn't but it? one thing that Donald said that I think people overlook is that our country's economic growth is tied to our ability to spend. So when people are not even making a livable wage, the country's economy is stagnant. That was pretty powerful. I, you know, I think the part of the conversation that's going to stick with me was when he said that public health is ubiquitous, but at the same time, somehow it's invisible. And there are lots of forces at work with a deliberate strategy, marketing, really, when you think about it, to get rid of public health and public goods. But that same marketing effort doesn't really exist on the public health side. That was really a perfect way to start off this podcast. It's got me even more excited for what's to come. Speaking of which, do you want to tell the audience who we have next, Beth? You got it. Next up on In Solidarity, we'll talk with Dr. Christine Muganda. She's a colleague of ours here at County Health Rankings, and she's going to talk more about how wealth and health are connected and where things stand right now in terms of the racial wealth gap. She'll also talk about some of the research we've done here at County Health Rankings and Roadmaps that show how some of these layers of disinvestment that Mr. Cohen described stack up in a community and worsen inequities. We'll break down the data, look at the places that have some of the biggest racial wealth gaps, and look at those that are making improvements. Until then, I'm Erica. And I'm Beth. And we're in solidarity, connecting power, place, and health. 
Now it's your turn to join the conversation. Head over to our podcast page on countyhealthrankings.org and share your thoughts with us. The question for this episode is, has the privatization of public goods impacted people in your community? And if so, how? In Solidarity is a production of County Health Rankings and Roadmaps from the University of Wisconsin with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Views expressed by guests of In Solidarity are their own. Their appearance on In Solidarity does not imply County Health Rankings and Roadmaps endorsement. To learn more about our guests' work, to discover additional resources on the topics we've discussed, or to find out how healthy your community is, visit us at countyhealthrankings.org.